This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse and our first 90-minute summer special. This week, the program goes through a range of emotions, from the joy of victory and the agony of defeat in Brazil to frustration and protest in Venezuela, plus fear and danger along the immigration trail. We'll also have a special in-depth interview with the U.S. Ambassador to Honduras. But first, Megan Eckhamel is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. The United Nations says Bolivia and Peru have successfully reduced the acreage of coca plants, the world's source of the illicit drug cocaine. Peru, Colombia, and Bolivia are the largest coca producers, respectively, in the world. However, the acreage in Colombia remains stable, unlike Peru and Bolivia. The Bolivian government set a goal to get the coca acreage down to about 50,000 acres by 2015. Ernesto Cordero is a coca grower in the Yungas region of Bolivia. In Yungas and La Paz, there is no more expansion of coca plantations. We are showing the world that Bolivia is fighting to show the truth to the world that coca is not harmful, and we are no longer expanding coca production. Despite less coca, the UN says that does not mean there will be less cocaine production. Producers have found more efficient ways to produce the drug and increased productivity. Coca leaves have a long history in Bolivia. The unprocessed leaves act as a mild stimulant when chewed, and they are also used in herbal medicines. A shootout over drugs left three dead in a favela in Rio this week. The deadly shootout happened in the Complexo do Alemão favela, an area targeted by Brazilian authorities for special pacification programs during the World Cup. The victims included two teens linked to drug trafficking, the other was a police officer. The favela is one of the largest in Brazil with a population of 100,000, and it's become the chosen destination for tourists who want to see the poorer parts of Rio de Janeiro. Gang members actively target and attack security forces within the favela. Before the pacification process, security forces did not enter the favela, but that started to change two years ago. Thousands of extra security forces have been deployed to provide another layer of security for the residents and World Cup tourists. The Federation of International Football Association, or FIFA, handed out its toughest penalty ever levied against a player during the World Cup. FIFA suspended Luis Suarez, a striker for Uruguay, who is regarded as one of the best soccer players in the world. FIFA says Suarez bit an opponent during the match between Uruguay and Italy this week. It's the third time Suarez will face a suspension for biting. The penalty will end the participation of Suarez in the competition and will no doubt hurt Uruguay's chances in the tournament. Uruguay has vowed to appeal the penalty before it faces Colombia this weekend. The elimination round of the tournament begins this weekend with other key matches, including Costa Rica versus Greece, Mexico versus the Netherlands, and host Brazil versus Chile. We'll have an in-depth analysis of Brazil's special relationship to the World Cup and a commentary about women and the cup, both coming up later in this program. Alan Gross, 
the United States citizen currently detained in a Cuban prison for more than four years, is planning to end his life. That news comes from the lawyer working with Gross. Gross began a brief hunger strike in April to attempt to get Cuban and U.S. negotiators to work harder on his case. Gross has lost more than 100 pounds since his imprisonment, and his wife says his health is failing. Gross was arrested while working with the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID. He was setting up internet networks for Cuba's Jewish community, but Cuban authorities contend he did not have proper authorization. Cuba's government considered his actions an offense against Cuban sovereignty. Cuba is hoping for the return of three Cuban intelligence agents serving long-term prison sentences in exchange for gross. The U.S. government refuses to negotiate with what it sees as an inequivalent trade. This week, the United Nations Committee on Decolonization addressed a resolution introduced by Cuba endorsing Puerto Rico's right to self-determination and independence. Venezuela, Nicaragua, Ecuador, and Bolivia all supported the resolution. In addition to Puerto Rico's independence, the resolution also demands Oscar Lopez Rivera's release. He is a Puerto Rican serving time for conspiracy and trafficking in firearms. Some consider Lopez Rivera a political prisoner. He just completed his 33rd year of prison in the United States. Coincidentally, this is the 33rd time countries have asked the UN to review the status of Puerto Rico. In a referendum two years ago, only 4% of Puerto Ricans favored independence, and statehood was the option most chose. But since that time, the US Congress and the Obama administration have not moved on changing the island's status. For Latin Pulse, I'm Megan Hamill. Thanks, Megan. We start our special with a bit of a temperature check in Venezuela. This week, yet another student died from injuries sustained during a street protest. In this case, from gunshot wounds during a protest in Maracaibo. As with some of these cases, it is unclear who fired the lethal shots. But protesters blame Venezuelan security forces and pro-government armed groups known as colectivos in this case. Exact figures are disputed, but Venezuelan government sources say between 40 and 50 people have died in the street protests that are almost daily occurrences since they began in February. And some of the dead include members of the Venezuelan security forces. Also, the protests are not confined to Venezuela. On this program, we've described the international Venezuela SOS movement in the past. And protesters in the U.S. are asking President Barack Obama and the U.S. Congress to take action, too. Last month, Venezuelan exiles from across the U.S. brought their call to action to the White House with a protest. Up on Capitol Hill, conservative members of the House of Representatives were listening and passed a measure calling for economic sanctions against Venezuela and the government of President Nicolas Maduro because of human rights abuses. The Obama administration has opposed such sanctions for various reasons. The main one, they would just worsen the situation and further polarize relations between Washington and Caracas. Republican Eliana Ross Leighton led the sanction effort in the House. Well, I ask, when is it a good time? How many more people have to be innocently killed for the time to be right? It will never be right. Maduro is the one who's perpetrating the violence. It's simple. For the moment, the sanction movement is stalemated by domestic politics in the United States. 
and Venezuelan voices in support of the Maduro government have also come to D.C. seeking to get their voices in the debate. Constitutional law expert and former Venezuelan senator Herman Escara has not always supported the Maduro government, but he's calling for new laws to end the violence and the protests. In the first place, the Venezuelan constitution guarantees the right to protest, but it is a right for peaceful protest, not for violent or armed protests. A new law would ask protesters to get the permission of the security forces before a protest could begin and then allow for notification of others. This is so the security forces can protect and preserve the human rights of those who have no interest in these protests. This guarantees the right to life, the right of free transit, the right to circulate in their own neighborhoods. That's terrible, terrible news. Javier Ciolisa is with the nonprofit Crisis Group International, based in Bogota. He is the author of a recent in-depth report from the organization about Venezuela. He spoke to us via Skype from Colombia. Forbidding the protests and penalizing them is exactly the wrong move, the wrong signal. Uh, it's, an, it's, a, it's, a, it's a manifestation of how stubborn this regime is. Besides the deaths of students associated with the protests, the Venezuelan government has arrested at least 1,500 people, many of them students, for their participation in the protests, and hundreds remain jailed after weeks and months. Several international human rights groups, including Amnesty International, have criticized the Maduro government for its handling of the protests. Some of these groups have detailed cases of torture and abuse by Venezuelan security forces, including cases of extrajudicial killings. Crisis Group is another nonprofit committed to peace and ending violence worldwide. It, too, criticized Venezuela's response to the protest movement. Instead of uh, uh, iron fist, that has been basically the policy of Venezuela against the protesters, some sort of reconciliation, including, for example, the release of the students that have been arrested, would be in place. For a time this spring, the supranational organization called UNASUR began a process of dialogue between the Venezuelan government, the protesters, and opposition parties. Sierra Liza agrees that such dialogue was a good step forward to ending the crisis, but he's critical of how those talks proceeded. UNASUR is more or less, more or less recognized as a valid interlocutor for the crisis, but the problem is that UNASUR is extremely fragile. It's a very new organization built uh, uh, mostly to promote political dialogue uh, between South American leaders and to provide solutions for problems, let's say, in infrastructure or economic coordination, but not to address political crisis. It was not designed for this kind of trouble. So when UNASUR decided to send three foreign affairs ministers, the Ecuadorian, the Colombian, and the Brazilian foreign ministers, to represent them, they went to, to Caracas uh, with probably good intentions, but without any agenda, without any methodology. And when you have a dialogue that is just starting, you need an agenda, you need goals, you need a timeline to know that things are moving on. But at the same time, the government seems to think that UNASUR is just a mechanism to buy some time. However, UNASUR's efforts to mediate have collapsed, at least for the moment. Sierra Lisa believes the United Nations may be one of the few organizations 
with enough international political clout and capacity to pick up the mediation process. United Nations has had a very long experience in dealing with political crisis. They have provided advisory services to many, many countries, including Venezuela, in 2002 uh, through the United Nations Development Program. So it's time to bring more actors, more credible actors with more experience and structure and methodology to help the parties to overcome this stalemate, which again is extremely dangerous for the very volatile political situation in Venezuela. Mark Weisbrot at the Center for Economic and Policy Research is a staunch defender of the Maduro government, but he also sees a need for the Venezuelan government to adjust its policies. See, I think the government has to change some policies economically, which they're beginning to do. I, mean, I do think the government has to resolve these economic problems. You know, you have 57% inflation. You have shortages. The last measure we had uh, was like 30% of goods not available in, any, in a given month. Sierra Lisa of the International Crisis Group also notes Venezuela's economic challenges. The paradox is that we have one of the wealthiest countries in the world with uh, 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 probably the largest oil reserves of the planet and at the same time an economy that is uh, coming into big trouble. And the other paradox is that Venezuela uh, has played uh, very differently from other countries in Latin America in terms of building or destroying its democratic institutions. But Weisbrot contends, despite what the mainstream media say, the protest movement in Venezuela is not fueled by the economic problems, the shortages, or the country's high crime rate. He says there are deeper political divisions and ambitions driving the leaders of the protests. But, you know, the protests did not seem to be driven uh, by the inflation or the shortages. And I say that because I was there uh, during them. And uh, first of all, it was a little shock when you go down there after seeing the media here because you think the country's on fire and you walk all over Caracas and there's nothing going on except in the richest the neighborhoods of the city. And there you see these little barricades and it's, it's only there. And you see these protesters, relatively small groups, uh, you know, throwing rocks and Molotov cocktails at the security forces and having these nightly battles. But the people who never joined the protests, nationwide even, uh, were the people who were most hurt by the inflation and the shortages, namely the half of the country, or the majority of the country that's not, the vast majority of the country that's not from the upper uh, income groups. Weisbrot also faults the international media for not making clear there are casualties on both sides due to the protests, and not all of the protesters are peaceful. About half of the people killed were actually killed as a result of opposition uh, actions and shootings and barricades and uh, crashing into it and things like that. But Carlos Laria of the Committee to Protect Journalists, or CPJ, sees it differently. He spoke to us via Skype from New York City. Not only have the media accurately reported that the protests are nationwide, beyond Caracas, but Laria faults the Venezuelan government for using the same heavy-handed tactics on the media as with the protesting students. Scores of journalists covering protests have been detained, uh, arbitrarily detained, uh, uh, have been harassed, have been beaten. The day the protest began, Venezuelan authorities took off the air uh, Colombian news station NTN24, 
the only station available to TV viewers in Venezuela that provided live coverage of protests uh, and has been very critical of the government. Uh, the decision was taken by the president. Loria says these restrictions on free speech and how the government controls and influences electronic sources of news while limiting the amount of paper independent newspapers can import amounts to restrictions that have degraded Venezuela's democratic system. It's a, it's a very grim uh, panorama. Uh, we are seriously concerned. Last month, after considering their final findings for more than a year, the Carter Center in Atlanta also called into question the health of Venezuela's democratic system when reflecting on how the elections that brought Maduro to power were conducted. The Carter Center noted there were credible concerns over government corruption, voters casting multiple ballots, inequities in the media system, and electoral and judicial authorities who were not independent of the president. Among their suggestions, the Venezuelan government needs to consider reforms. Sierra at Crisis Group would agree. Uh, Venezuelans has to rebuild its own rule of law and provide some uh, minimum doses of trust to uh, its uh, 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 public institutions, particularly the electoral system and the judicial system. The crisis group report on Venezuela says the country's justice system has been used for partisan ends to amplify rather than check the power of the president, including the heavy influence of the president on the country's Supreme Court. Even if they want to open some space and appoint some independent figures, they are terrified of the prospects of having an independent judiciary that can eventually turn against it, not because of uh, political revenge, but of, as a matter of justice, mostly because the human rights violations, particularly the killings, the torture, the arbitrary arrests uh, that affected uh, thousands of Venezuelans during these months are uh, crimes and human rights violations that would need to be prosecuted. So this is a kind of a stalemate, very difficult, very difficult to overcome. So what we are proposing is that there should be some sort of transitional mechanisms that uh, leave some space for both sides, including the government, uh, recognize that the country is divided by two, but at the same time provide some trust in temporary mechanisms, for example, the Electoral Commission needs to be restructured in a way that at least a majority of them, three out of five members, are trusted. And maybe this cannot come from uh, neither the government nor the opposition. Maybe this uh, should come at this moment from some sort of uh, international uh, supervision or international participation, some sort of transitional arrangement, as has happened in many, many other countries in Latin America, Chile, uh, Peru, Mexico. In the transitions to democracy, they passed through very ad hoc, extraordinary mechanisms that could provide trust to both sides, and at the same time, some sort of bridge between a very confrontational moment to a democracy, a consolidated democracy in a reconciliation mode. And now a bit of transparency and full disclosure. During the fall of 2013, I conducted a speaking tour in Venezuela on free speech issues. That tour was partially funded by USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Development. If you think that has affected our coverage of Venezuela, or if you would like to respond to any part of this program, please write us. You may leave us a message online via SoundCloud. 
or you may contact us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Coming up, an in-depth discussion with our special guest, the U.S. Ambassador to Honduras. We'll head to Tegucigalpa in a moment. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This week, the U.S. State Department issued a new travel advisory warning against travel to Honduras. One of the lines in the advisory read this way. Members of the Honduran National Police have been known to engage in criminal activity, including murder and car theft. And as noted on this program several times, Honduras currently has the worst murder rate in the world. All of this is context to our discussion with Ambassador Lisa Kubiski, the U.S. Ambassador to Honduras. She spoke to us via Skype from the embassy in Tegucigalpa. We asked her to evaluate the performance of the U.S. in Honduras during her posting there. What's the measure? The measure is, are people's lives better in any way? And, um, and to what extent are the U.S. Uh, and Honduras able to work together on shared problems? And um, if you look at it that way, I think there are uh, a number of areas where we've had um, some success. Uh, that isn't to say there isn't lots more to do, but where I think these three years made a, a critical difference. What specific areas would, would you highlight then? The first would be in um, a program called Feed the Future. That uh, In Honduras, that's called Proyecto Acceso. That's a program that works with the very poorest farmers, and it tries to give them better agricultural practices um, and connect them to markets so that they can get out of extreme poverty. And the farmers we're working with are, for the most part, in extreme poverty. Um, the, it has a nutrition component, too. But if I, uh, just to give you an idea of the scope, um, this project began uh, while I've been here. And we're working with about 35,000 families, which is almost 200,000 people. And um, we've had uh, a little bit of downside from coffee rust that slowed us down a little bit. But we've had a tremendous amount of success in getting people out of extreme poverty. Um, why would we care about extreme poverty? Well, first, we care because nobody should be in extreme poverty. But second, um, the, when you're in extreme poverty, you still have to live. And how do people live? Uh, one piece of it is the migration story. And um, so we've been told, I've been told uh, quite a few times that now that they have a program where they can, um, they, uh, a way to earn some money, um, they don't have to go illegally to the states, uh, as an example. So that, that's one area. But there are others. Um, another one is elections. It, um, Honduras had a political crisis. Uh, we label it a coup in 2009 and it was they had an election in 2010 but many people viewed that at, uh, as illegitimate uh, 
And so these were the first elections after 2010 where you couldn't ascribe the um, who won to the coup. You know, it, it was just its own election. And it was important that those elections be conducted in a way that would um, provide a result, elected leaders, that the Honduran population thought were genuinely elected. Uh, we gave a lot of support to the process, not to the outcome, but I mean, not to who, who won, but to the process of making sure that technically it could run okay that um, when there were disagreements, that those disagreements were aired about the process in talking about um, making sure um, that we understood how much violence might or might not occur if they were generally peaceful elections, generally very transparent elections. That was another area that uh, I think we made a difference that affects the way the country can move forward. And, and uh, maybe the third area, is very big and you'll want to break it down, but is in the area of citizen security. Um, lots of things from the first extradition, uh, working with the Hondurans uh, to encourage them that extradition of their people would uh, aid in the fight against narco-trafficking, to um, how to make use of uh, assets that were being seized, to capacity building, to outreach centers to deal with the youth, uh, to destroying, uh, beginning to destroy some weapons that were excess or uh, could easily get into the wrong hands. A whole cluster of things around that. I think we'd like to talk about all three of those areas. Um, let's start with the immigration question because um, you mentioned that in your Feed the Future um, program and how it works to alleviate poverty as a, as a root cause of immigration. Um, I'm sure you're aware that Last week, Vice President Biden announced a new program to combat the influx of undocumented and unaccompanied children to the U.S., $93 million that the U.S. is, is putting in to, to try to stop that particular flow. How much of that is going to be used in Honduras, and what's going to be done in Honduras to stop that particular flow? I think the people who are best informed to tell you about the meeting and the outcome are, are people who are based in Washington rather than me. But in general terms, um, I can say that the, there's a, a twofold effort. There's the effort we have had underway and which uh, we will intensify as budget permits, which is to work with the poorest and with the people who are in, especially youth in very difficult neighborhoods, urban neighborhoods, but not necessarily urban, um, to uh, create, um, uh, give them some, help the government, give them some education, help them uh, be a little healthier, um, help them with uh, vocational skills um, and working with the business community to uh, and with the government to see where there are opportunities to create more jobs. So that's uh, an ongoing process, and we will continue to do that. We do it very actively. We've seen the security aspect of that. You know, we used to do, do those things because it was important for economic development, but it's very clear that there's a link to security as well. And so we do it for all those reasons. The other thing is um, the uh, with the... Uh, with the people who are repatriated back to Honduras, um, making sure that uh, they get as uh, the best um, 
treatment possible coming back. And so there's some additional money for, for that. You spoke uh, about the Feed the Future program, and, and obviously, as you noted, that does have an um, impact on citizen security and poverty. Can you give us a little bit more of the specifics of that particular program and how it deals with both those areas? Okay, well, the um, and, and I should say before I, I give you those specifics, um, that uh, particular program has been very successful, and we've... Um, uh, expanded it by working with the Honduran government to so uh, so that they could win a, a big grant from the World Bank, and we found other donors. So now instead of 35,000 families, uh, we're hoping to be able to hit 50,000 families. Is that so part that, of the Millennium no. Challenge grant? Pardon me. Is, is, uh, uh, no, no, that's its own thing. So, but what is it? Um, you take uh, a very for, poor farmer who lives in a pretty remote area, and um, he, typically he'll grow uh, corn and beans. And typically that will use all his available land, which is not a big plot of land. And you say, okay, well, if you do it like this, you know, maybe it's uh, drop irrigation or, you know, very simple uh, agricultural practices, uh, you can have a better yield. When you have a better yield, you don't need to use all your land for those crops. Uh, you can get the same production out of a smaller area, and then you can take your other land and uh, try growing some uh, cash crops. And, uh, you know, it could be carrots, it could be strawberries, it could be coffee, could be a lot of things. And then the, the critical piece is when you get the cash crop, you have to sell it. A lot of programs in the past broke down because they didn't connect to a market. And so through AID, we're helping find that market and helping the um, farmers uh, organize themselves in groups big enough, not not formal co-ops, I'm not talking about that, but it, if you're going to supply, say, a grocery store, uh, maybe the production that comes from one community covers one week of supply, and you have another area that can do another week of supply, but little by little, they all get connected to the grocery store. And it's the, uh, the cash in hand that makes a big difference. So when you have the cash in hand, uh, it can go for a lot of things. It can go to buy school uniforms. It can go to buy um, small improvements for your house. Now we're trying to um, uh, link up with programs that the Honduran government has, particularly its program called Vida Mejor, uh, which is Live Better. And um, because they have some of the same goals and we have some experts from our programs that are very useful. So we'll try to put it together and reach quite a few families. You talked earlier about the transparency of the last election process. How would you characterize the health of democracy in Honduras now? Wow, that's a cosmic question. <laughs> the, uh, there were... Um, uh, eight presidential candidates in the last election, um, and uh, so quite a few political parties. And the that was a change. It had been a, a two-party system for quite a long time before that. Um, I, I can't tell you how long, maybe 100 years. So uh, the results of the election was you had one person who ran, won the presidency, but when you look at the makeup of the Congress, um, you have um, uh, a new important party in the number two position and you have actually at least four parties that matter a lot 
and so um, it, uh, it it transformed uh, the political scene in in Honduras quite a bit. Um, in terms of the ability to speak out and say what you want to say, um, that exists. Uh, I don't think anybody really uh, questions whether somebody can stand up on a corner and say what he wants to say. So um, in that sense, it's very alive. But you do have a lot of new entrants to um, uh, to the field. And uh, so all the ways that political parties normally deal with each other, that's not, uh, in my view, all worked out yet. As you know, the last election uh, was a bit controversial. The Libre Party disputed how it ended up. Um, but yet the U.S. Embassy was very quick to sanction the election and say that it was free and transparent. I'm, I'm just wondering about the speed of how that works. It, doesn't that sort of sanctioning give fuel to critics like Venezuela and others um, in the ALBA bloc who say the U.S. is supporting Honduras in a particular way post-coup? I, I hope not. The, um, you know, when uh, uh, when we made uh, our statements, um, we were talking to a lot of other groups of observers, both international and national. And uh, each group of observers was going around doing its own thing. And they, they all came up with that conclusion. It was hardly just the United States. Um, but, you know, the U.S. Uh, it is an important voice in Honduras. Had I said nothing, it would have had an interpretation as well. Um, so I think we were pretty much in the mainstream of what people were saying. There was, um, you know, this um, this election process, when you're talking about election day, um, it had many layers of transparency. Uh, anybody who wanted to could watch the vote count. Every uh, political party who was at a mesa at a vote in a voting station um, received a copy of the um, of the document that was summarizing the vote count. So in case uh, there was an accusation of fraud, um, the um, you could go see what were the uh, those documents that the other parties had because uh, you know it, depending on how many parties were at the table, you'd have several. Uh, copies, so you should be able to confirm. So, and then they had a a, a pretty rigorous process for determining um, if there was a miscount or fraud or anything else. And in fact, um, uh, Libre presented some, um, uh, which is one of the new parties, presented um, some, uh, a number of complaints. And I think they picked up four thousand votes in the process through that process of reviewing. Uh, the electoral uh, the the vote count, so um, that between knowing what the process was and uh, talking to the other observers, uh, I uh, we felt pretty confident with what we were saying. Our special guest today on Latin Pulse, Ambassador Lisa Kubiski. She is the U.S. Ambassador to Honduras. Joining us via Skype from Tegucigalpa. We'll be back with more on the elections and more on the other topics that we've discussed in a moment. I want to finish school and then go to college to be able to graduate and have the future my parents couldn't have because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. 
Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Ambassador Lisa Kubiski, the U.S. Ambassador to Honduras, joins us today via Skype from Tegucigalpa on Latin Pulse. Thank you. We've been talking about elections. Um, members of the Libre Party, as you know, have been um, critical of the election process. And some of the members of the party have said that before the election, the U.S. Emb- embassy approached them about accepting the results, controversial or corrupt. What's your response to them? Um, I, I don't know exactly what they said, but I know um, there were many uh, times in uh, during the campaign when we were when uh, the political parties were working with the the electoral tribunal to um, shape the rules and, and and apply the rules, where um, Libre had a number of complaints and that. Uh, some of which were justified. Where they were justified, we raised them in our own voice as well. So we we honestly um, were looking for a process and not uh, for an outcome. Now, what uh, we did hope was that if the process uh, was generally um, uh, okay, that uh, people would accept the results for what they were and uh, maybe that's maybe that's what they're alluding to, but you would have to ask them. Uh, I certainly uh, didn't um, think that anybody should accept unjustified results. Let me try to bridge to my earlier question about the, the critics of the process. Um, some of the critics have criticized the electoral tribunal and saying it's not necessarily completely independent in Honduras. This is the same criticism that the U.S. has of the Electoral Tribunal in Venezuela and some other countries in Latin America. So this is like this is what I was talking about in that if the United States does something in the process and, and sanctions a questionable electoral tribunal, doesn't that undercut what we might criticize in other countries in the region? I think in the Honduras case, uh, the basic structure of the tribunal um, was set up um, went under the two-party system. And so some of the complaints uh, had to do with how the new parties were going to be incorporated before they proved that they had won, right? So if you um, start right now and you look to the next election, now would be the time for political parties to engage on all of the electoral issues if they wish to do that. If you don't mind, I'd I'd like to talk about the drug war because um, Honduras is, I would characterize as one of the front lines in the drug war. How would you characterize progress in the drug war in the past three years there? I think there's uh, uh, one point that's really, really important, which is uh, I think there's been a lot of progress toward sending signals to narco-traffickers that Honduras is not going to automatically give them impunity. So why do I say the impunity from the law? Why do I say that? Um, Because Honduras extradited its first Honduran. It took a lot. People were very afraid um, that they would get killed if they made a change like that. And uh, they didn't uh, necessarily trust the judicial system. to um, uh, deliver an, an honest process. 
and um, and and it 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 took a lot of effort by a lot of people uh, to accomplish that. And I think when Carlos Lobo was extradited, it was a pretty clear signal to um, the other narco traffickers that this wasn't going to stand. But it wasn't just uh, the extradition, as big as that was. That was huge. Um, but over the last three years, more than three years, four or five years, we've worked with um, uh, the agency that seizes assets. You know, if the police do an operation and they go in and they seize a lot of assets of of suspected uh, criminals, then what happens to those assets? There is a legal procedure you need to go through to um, make sure that the government has a right to hold on or distribute those assets that don't actually belong to the suspects um, or don't shouldn't belong to them anymore. And uh, so we worked quite a bit with, with that. And there were quite a few seizures in the um, the last few years, including a couple of really big ones, and um, and and that was another way of sending a signal to um, to criminals that um, you know the the days when crime paid maybe uh, might be beginning to end. So uh, so that was huge, and we continue to do all of that um, kind of work, but there's a, a really notable difference. We've done a lot in um, training um, uh, every what, what they call the operators of justice. That means everybody from the police through the prosecutors through the courts. Um, and, um, and uh, you know, I don't, you wouldn't, we don't do anything alone. We can't do anything without the Honduran government supporting this, right? Um, they've, if you look today, you see a lot more arrests than you used to see. Now, is that to say the situation is where it needs to be? Absolutely not. But if you're saying, what's the difference now com compared to three years ago? It's a tremendous difference. During your first year as ambassador, there was a deadly shooting in Awas in the Mosquitia, the indigenous zone. Four people were killed, including a pregnant woman and a teenager. State Department helicopters were used, uh, drug enforcement agents were involved. You have said, even though that was uh, regrettable, um, that there were lessons learned during that um, particular tragedy. What, what do you think were the lessons that were learned from that? Well, before that, I, I need to correct one thing. Um, there was an autopsy of the woman who was uh, who people thought was pregnant, and the autopsy shows she was not pregnant. That's a just a detail um, in what you're saying, um, because obviously anytime four people die, it's a terrible thing. But what are the, the lessons? Um, they, uh, there were a lot of sort of uh, technical lessons um, that um, just who does what, how people uh, are interviewed, um, they, uh, who does the investigation? How is the investigation done? There are a lot of things that, um, you know, anytime you have any operation, you would um, you would uh, do this kind of uh, what's sometimes called the postmortem, not not because of the people, but just because you look at the event and say, what else can we do? This has added to the criticism of some about the way that the drug war is prosecuted in Honduras using forward bases, some that uh, are left over from the Contra era in, in Honduras. Um, how do you respond to those who 
say that the U.S. policy in Honduras is helping with a remilitarization of the country? Uh, it's not, point blank, it's not. They, um, for starters, um, if you go back to that um, anvil period... Um, that was that, Operation Anvil, yes? Uh, Operation Anvil, that, that was uh, a police operation. It wasn't a military operation. The, uh, but the second thing is we have um, constantly promoted um, uh, cleaning the cleaning out the police, make, reforming the police structure, um, and so on. That's where we've put our money. Um, and, um, you know, there is a legitimate military-to-military uh, -military role in protecting borders, uh, the coastal waters, and that kind of thing. And so there is training we do for that, but that, uh, you know, you would have to give me a definition of militarization. That's not something we're supporting. I suppose given Honduras's history um, and given the role of the military in the coup, that some would say militarization has to do with the further involvement of the military in civilian life and in being a check on civilian government to go back to the issue of democracy in Honduras. Okay. There's another definition, too. It's, is it, are, are the military running the country? You know, did they uh, take over undemocratically? That That's clearly not happening, right? It's not happening. Um, if you say um, uh, that uh, if you're talking about the the military police uh, issue there uh, the current government uh, and the pre the end of the previous government created a military police to fill in where they thought the police couldn't this was uh, uh, I think their idea they've told us their idea is to um, uh, get the police up to speed but for the time being there's a problem and they have a gap they see the alternative as um, you know, do do nothing and let criminals run around, or try to use these um, uh, military police. So, uh, like I said, the United States has been saying, "Well, let's try to get the uh, police up to speed as fast as possible." We vet everybody we work with, um, and um, and we uh, try to train them as best we can. We we don't do that alone. We do that with other nationalities um, because. Uh, we feel very strongly that every country deserves to have a, every community deserves to have a, 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 an effective, professional, clean police force. If I could switch gears a, a, a bit, um, documents from WikiLeaks reveal that the State Department cables in Honduras called Miguel Facuse, the owner of Dinant, one of the most powerful men in Honduras. Several journalistic articles, including one in The Nation, say that one of the reasons you were picked to be the ambassador is because of your expertise in science, agriculture, biofuels, um, which meant much of that is the core of DNOT's business. So I'm wondering how you characterize the relationship between FACUSE, DNOT, and the U.S. government. Uh, um, I don't have any comment on anything that was in WikiLeaks. And as to why I was chosen, that's a question for the people who chose me. It's not a question for me. Uh, I had uh, done uh, some work, uh, particularly with um, Brazil, um, to see where could the U.S. and Brazil work together. And one of the areas was in uh, biofuels. So I, I did have uh, that that kind of background. It, it uh, 
that didn't have anything to do with uh, FACUSE, though. What haven't we covered that you think is important for our listeners to hear? I think the uh, one point that is often missed is um, the extent to which um, the U.S. is a force for democracy in the sense of trying to uh, uh, help ordinary people find voice, not tell them what to say. Let me be really clear. But if I, I'll give you two examples that are probably not controversial. If, if you think of uh, security, the, uh, we have programs that go into communities and say, okay, guys, what do you think are your worst security problems? And which ones would you like solved first? And how, how would you go about solving it? Uh, so we get the whole community involved. Sometimes the local government gets involved. Occasionally, uh, a higher level of government gets involved. And then we have some seed money for some of those uh, programs. So what is that? That is uh, trying to uh, elicit from the local community their own ideas of what's important. And they're very articulate. We've um, given some seed money to redesign schools to make them safer, for example. Sometimes communities want more lighting. We've provided some seed money for that. Depends on what they want. Um, it, another example of that is um, is in the financial area. Uh, the communities um, frequently haven't uh, analyzed their own finances. And so um, so we, we just work with them and walk them through an analysis of their own finances and talk about how to strengthen it, how to have more income-generating uh, capacity locally um, instead of depending only on the, on the central government. But on a political level, the, when I arrived, I, I think it's fair to say that I found a fairly... Uh, disparate civil NGO group. Uh, uh, I, I won't call it a unit. They were a lot of different groups. They weren't. Um, they they had many different voices, which is fine. But they uh, they weren't accomplishing very much. And so um, we uh, we just gave them a little bit. Not one, not one. Several. Uh, a little bit of credibility so that they could find their own voice so they could speak out just create forums where they could speak uh, for where they could speak out and uh, and then if you go to the economic side and you think of um, all those uh, small communities where we have the agriculture programs or all the uh, bad neighborhoods where we have a whole series of programs for youth the emphasis is on uh, helping the population find its own voice and participate in in the decisions of the country and um, that maybe that doesn't get said enough thank you so much ambassador lisa kubiski the u.s ambassador to honduras joining us via skype from tegucigalpa today our special guest on latin pulse okay thank you very much and now some postscripts to our interview with ambassador kubiski the ambassador asked if she could clarify her statements regarding our questions about how U.S. policies might influence a further militarization or remilitarization of Honduras. Here's what she added. We're focused on citizen security. We're working with civilian institutions for the most part. There is a legitimate uh, military to military role if you're talking about protecting coastal waters or protecting borders, right? Um, but if you take... Um, what I guess is the most visible sign of 
uh, our military presence here, which is Joint Task Force Bravo. Um, and you think, what, is, what does that do? Um, what it does is um, disaster relief, a lot of uh, training, a lot of medical services in the area and in the, in, and in the Central American region. Uh, the disaster re- relief is regional. Um, so uh, that's not uh, the role you would normally think of for the military. And another postscript, this one concerning the drug interdiction mission in Awas, where four indigenous villagers were killed and U.S. Drug Enforcement Agents and State Department helicopters were part of the operation. Authorities say they seized half a ton of cocaine in that mission, but witnesses say a large boat bearing indigenous villagers ventured into the area during that night mission. Members of the anti-narcotics team shot and killed some of those on board. Although Ambassador Kabiski stressed none of the women killed in that incident was pregnant, a letter signed by 58 members of the U.S. Congress last year noted one of the victims was pregnant. Various journalistic sources and reports by the Center for Economic and Policy Research and Rights Action also say one of the victims was pregnant. A bipartisan group in the U.S. Congress has asked for further investigation into the AWAS case and other incidents of deadly shootings involving U.S. anti-narcotics teams in Honduras. Last month, the U.S. Department of Justice and the State Department's Office of Inspector General announced they would open a joint review of the AWAS incident and other deadly shooting cases where villagers became part of the collateral damage in the drug war in Honduras. Coming up, more on the issue of undocumented immigration from Central America, and later in the program an examination of the World Cup and Brazilian national identity. A man is found guilty of trafficking Brazilian women to the UK to make them work as prostitutes. The head of an international trafficking network is jailed in Romania, and three people are sent to prison in America for operating a Mexican baby smuggling ring. Human traffickers trick and deceive their victims, but by joining forces we can bring these criminals to justice. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking, ungift.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. As noted in our interview with Ambassador Kubiski, the U.S. government responded this past week to what some are calling a humanitarian crisis on the U.S. border with Mexico. The influx of tens of thousands of undocumented child immigrants unaccompanied by their parents. The U.S. government estimates 40,000 children have attempted to cross illegally into the U.S. this year. Some say gangs, crime, and violence are factors pushing these children northward, mostly from Central America. But some, like John Boehner, the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, say it's a perception that the Obama administration will not deport these undocumented children, some as young as five or six. As noted, The U.S. government is working with governments in Central America to devote millions of dollars to anti-poverty, anti-gang, and anti-violence programs. The expenditures include a special program of public service announcements clarifying U.S. policies on the deportation of minors to run on media outlets in Central America. This spring, before the government started releasing information about this new influx of illegal immigration, we spoke to an expert on the dangers of the migrant trip northward. Here are excerpts from our conversation with Sonia Wolf of the Mexican think tank called INCIDE, the Institute for Security and Democracy. INCIDE released a new report 
on the dangers to undocumented immigrants in Mexico this past year. Wolf gives us details of that report via Skype from Juarez, Mexico, on the border. Okay, so the idea of our study was to um, to look at um, the procedures, the formal procedures and the informal practices of the National Migration Institute because we wanted to understand um, the factors that make um, high levels of corruption but also human rights violations against undocumented migrants possible. Well, let's talk about those two areas. First, the area of migrant abuse and human rights um, in regards to the migratory policies in Mexico. Many here in the United States do not even realize that Mexico does have a immigration policy and, and doesn't necessarily allow the totally free movement of, of folks who are migrating from Central America or other parts of Latin America to the United States. And, and so maybe you could, could help um, educate us about those issues. Yes, Mexico has um, several migration um, dynamics. Um, of course, many Mexican citizens leave the country uh, in order to um, to travel to the United States, where they hope to find um, better um, job opportunities or to be with their um, with their relatives. Um, but also, uh, we have some um, foreigners who um, who want to reside in Mexico. But certainly, the, the strongest migration dynamic that we see in Mexico is trans migration. So we're seeing um, undocumented migrants who come from, from other countries, even from other regions, travel through Mexico, um, generally also in order to reach the United States. For the most part, uh, the undocumented, undocumented migrants are from Central America, especially from the northern countries, Guatemala, El Salvador and Honduras. Um, Mexico has a migration policy um, that formally also um, um, affirms respect for migrant rights, but in practice we see many deficiencies in the in the implementation um, of this policy, and this um, uh, manifests itself, um, of course, in the in the migration management that is being carried out by the National Migration Institute. Undocumented migrants in Mexico have been facing um, abuses for several years now. Um, this has changed uh, in part because uh, organized crime. Um, was confronted um, by the Calderon um, presidency um, in more um, in stronger terms. So uh, several of the groups, especially the Zetas, um, tried to to find a criminal niche and other activities. And this criminal niche um, was especially um, assaults um, on migrants, migrant kidnappings, but also extortions. So these violations have um, deteriorated over the last few years. Um, but the abuses and the crimes that are being committed against undocumented migrants um, uh, occur not only um, on, on the part of criminal groups, but also um, state agents um, are implicated, um, collude with criminals or actively participate in these activities. And when we talk about state agents, um, we're talking about um, um, the police forces, but also migration agents and um, militaries in some cases. Your report, did it indicate any change in that area, that this these conditions are getting worse or better? Um, the conditions um, are changing. They are not, um, not necessarily worsening, but they're not getting better either. What we're seeing is that um, um, the criminal groups, for example, are adjusting um, whenever migrants try to, to adjust to the abuses they're facing. For example, um, Migrants um, for for some time now um, have preferred um, 
one of the, the routes over others, which is um, the, the migration route along the along the Gulf Coast. Um, but when the criminal groups um, figured this out and and abuses increased in that area, migrants have tried to um, to travel to other parts of the country, especially the center, but also um, slightly more along the the Pacific coast. What we see in terms of institutional responses, however, has not changed. Um, the Mexican state continues to be um, unable or unwilling to provide more security along the, the migration route. Um, but the National Migration Institute also um, um, still faces high levels of corruption um, and abuses on the part of, of the migration agents also continue. So um, what we see is con continuity really, even though um, the the various commissioners who have headed the institute have promised um, purges of the institute, have um, um, vouched to reduce corruption, but this has not uh, not happened because the, the problems continue. So this suggests that any institutional changes that have been announced um, have not been effective in that sense. So in other words, those who are supposed to be maintaining good immigration policy and human rights within Mexico are looking the other way to these abuses uh, because they're aligned more with the criminal groups who are involved now in these illegal immigration practices. Yes, it is very difficult um, for anyone in, in Mexico to deny what is happening. Um, um, it is true that um, many migrants would prefer not to not to report what has happened to them um, um, very often because they are afraid of the authorities. But there are many um, testimonies that have been collected by migrant shelters, for example. Um, so human rights defenders, also national human rights institutions, have the information and also um, intelligence that is that is being collected. Um, by uh, police and military institutions and by the by the same National Migration Institute really allows the, the institutions in, in the country to be um, aware of what is happening, to know where migrants travel, where assaults um, on migrants occur. Um, so um, it, it is difficult to, you know, to, to, de to deny what is happening. And what we see is either unwillingness or incapacity to, to respond to the situation. What are the rates of these crimes against these migrants? Uh, how many people are being disappeared? How many people are, are being murdered? How many people are being raped? Do we have an idea? Um, it is difficult um, to quantify this. The National Commission for Human Rights um, has published um, two reports over the years, for example, on migrant kidnappings. Um, so this would um, suggest that, um, uh, according to this estimate, um, Per year, about 20,000 migrants are being uh, kidnapped. This is um, one figure that we have. Um, it is difficult to know um, how many um, females are being raped, how many um, individuals um, are being disappeared. This is um, one very, very difficult area. Um, the figures are in the thousands. This is um, something one can one can certainly say, um, but it is difficult to to quantify. Um, um, what is happening to migrants, but um, what is certainly clear from from the testimonies is the um, the, the sheer tragedy um, tragedy of of everything that is um, that is happening to migrants in Mexico. What are the recommendations of of your institute of your think tank in in trying to improve this situation in Mexico? Generally, it would be important. Um, for the countries in the region, for the United States, Mexico, and the Central American countries um, to get together and to formulate a regional migration policy. 
so far what we have seen um, with respect to um, migration control um, is an emphasis um, on security and not on human rights. Trans migrants um, generally um, seek to reach the United States for, for social reasons. They leave their countries because they cannot find um, decent work, because there are no educational opportunities, because of the violence um, that is happening in, in these countries. So no matter how many controls are being implemented by Mexico and by the United States, um, migrants, especially from Central America, will try to reach the United States. So it is fundamental um, to work on a regional migration policy that will find or, or provide an answer um, to this current situation. And of course, work should also be done um, on community development, but this is more in, in, in the longer term, trying to um, to um, to raise uh, development levels in, in communities in Central America, also in, in Mexico. Thank you so much. Sonia Wolf of the Mexican think tank INCIDE, the Institute for Security and Democracy, joining us on Latin Pulse today from Ciudad Juarez in Mexico via Skype. Thank you very much. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination, and domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn, indignate, act. Most of the world seems to have caught World Cup fever. Even in the U.S., where the popular sports are baseball and a different kind of football, this summer, more attention than ever is tuned into soccer and FIFA, the Federation of International Football Association and its World Cup, which is about to head into its second stage in Brazil. Our Elisa Pacheco ventured out into Washington, D.C., and then via phone and Skype internationally to find a bit of the essence of what's behind interest in the cup and why it's so important to Brazil, the country that has won the championship more than any other. Lucky Bar is one of the many locales in Washington, D.C. to come down with World Cup fever. They're serving caparinhas and Brazilian food like collard greens and creamy feijadas stew. Just a handful of Brazilian fans celebrated here earlier this week, watching Brazil play against Cameroon. The first half of the game was a little tense. Brazil hadn't yet secured its place in the tournament's second round, but the Brazilian team went on to score a decisive 4-1 victory. Now the Brazilians will face off with Chile when the second round of the tournament begins this Saturday. But does five-time World Cup champion Brazil have any reason to be anxious as the tournament goes on? Maybe so, if they once again are haunted by the so-called mutt complex. Brazilian playwright Nelson Rodriguez coined this term in reference to one of the biggest upsets in the history of soccer, when Brazil lost to Uruguay in 1950 while hosting the World Cup. That World Cup was... A perfect example of Brazil coming out on the world stage to shine. This is writer and analyst Rachel Glickhaus. She's an expert on Brazil who blogs at riogringa.com. What makes this, the 1950 World Cup so interesting is that its legacy still lives on today. So even if you talk to 
young people, not just people who lived through 1950, but even young people know about it and it makes them cringe because it's such a part of a national tragedy. And, they, and that's what they call it. They do call it a national tragedy. Brazilians call their 1950 defeat to Uruguay the Maracanazo. It's a riff on the Maracana Stadium where the game took place. It was after the world. It was after World War II, and Brazil offered itself as a way to sort of save the, the World Cup in the aftermath of the war. So, it was this period when Brazil had the chance to be a savior in the face of so much destruction during the war. So there was this assumption that Brazil would win, that that they would naturally. Uh, be victors on their home turf, and when they weren't, it was absolutely devastating. It was not just a blow in terms of a sporting event, it was a blow to national pride, uh, a blow to everything that Brazilians thought of themselves in terms of being the best in the world. Thus, the idea of the muck complex was born. Nelson Rodriguez wrote that this is the inferiority in which Brazilians voluntarily place themselves in front of the rest of the world. According to Rodriguez, the muck complex is meant to explain why Brazilians sometimes lack faith in themselves, why they doubt themselves, why they're sensitive about the way outside countries see them. In 1958, Brazil won its first World Cup title in Sweden. It's still the only time that a European team did not win a World Cup hosted in Europe. Rodriguez wrote the following. In 58, when the game Brazil versus Sweden was over, every Brazilian felt vindicated, liberated from so much past hunger and biblical humiliations. In the streets, the facial expressions seemed to be saying, I'm not a mutt. Glickhaus says the weight of global expectations on Brazil is one thing that arguably feeds this muck complex. Brazil has had these periods, these waves of being the country of the future, and this hope that it will be this great global star, and it doesn't always work out like that. So I think that also feeds into this complex that Brazilians have great expectations for the country, but they don't always work out as planned. Journalist Julia Michaels, who's lived in Brazil for more than 30 years, says that from her perspective, the muck complex means half the time Brazilians see themselves as a powerhouse of a country. And then half the time it's just, oh, we're terrible, we're awful, we just, you know, this is, we just aren't worth anything. Michael says she saw a bit of the muck complex when her Brazilian friends discussed the World Cup opening ceremony on Facebook. The pageant was directed by a Belgian and choreographed by an Italian. The opening ceremonies, everyone thought they were terrible. They were terrible. Um, you know, why did they give it to a Belgian and an Italian? Why didn't they let Brazilians take care of it? We are so good at this, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, there was sort of like half the feeling we would have done a better job and then half the feeling of, you know, being crushed by the powers that be that somehow we've been squeezed out of it all by the Europeans. But then a friend of mine who... Uh, a Brazilian who goes back and forth quite a bit uh, between Brazil and the States, took the trouble to look up videos of opening ceremonies of other World Cups and found that they all looked just like the one we just had. So there was no big meaning to it. (laughs) Now Brazil is hosting the World Cup for the second time in history. But it's a very different scene from 64 years ago. 
Roberto de Mata remembers going to see the 1950 games with his family. He's an anthropologist at the University of Notre Dame, who recently participated in a teleconference hosted by the Woodrow Wilson Center's Brazil Institute. In the 50s, I was 13 years old. I was just opening my eyes to the, to the Brazilian world and to, to football. And I realized that uh, we had built the greatest stadium in the world, which was, you know, I was there with my father and, and brothers for one game, Brazil against Yugoslavia. And we all, you know, uh, marveled by the fact that uh, we had a wonderful team. Uh, we had uh, this the incredible stadium. And uh, we went by, by public transportation from Niterói to Maracanã. Now, if you compare all this, this environment with the environments today, we realize that there is an enormous, a tremendous amount and perception of problems and difficulties and also manifestations. Brazil has seen no small amount of social unrest in the past year. And many observers, including Damata, says this reflects a kind of political maturity compared to 1950. Brazilians are taking to the streets to demand more from their political elites, not just soccer stadiums. Better transportation, better schools, better hospitals. As Brazilian journalist Jason Tercio recently wrote in a commentary for Brazil's largest newspaper, maybe the muck complex is now a myth. Maybe Brazil no longer needs soccer to be happy or unhappy every four years. Demata puts it this way. Football is not the opium of the people anymore. For now, however, the games go on. There's been little social unrest on the streets, and while some polls showed that Brazilians held a very negative view of the World Cup just before the games started, now the mood seems to be one of high spirits. Here's Julia Michaels again in Rio de Janeiro. Everyone's asking everybody else, you know, where are you going to watch the game? The last game, everyone in the streets was wearing the jerseys. Let's put everything else aside. Let's just focus on this. And, and you know, Brazilians have this... this feeling that they themselves are helping the team to win. But if you don't contribute to that vibe, then you'll do harm to the team. <laughs> so, it's, you know, I think it's a very positive feeling at the moment. Once the World Cup is over, Brazil will have to contend with elections in October. And then there's that other mega event that Rio de Janeiro has to plan for, the 2016 Olympics. Anthropologist Roberto de Mata says he thinks it's impossible for Brazil to host these two mega-events in such a short time period and not dramatically affect the country's internal politics. There's also the question of what a World Cup loss would mean for Brazilian politics and society. If Brazil is once again defeated in the arena while hosting the tournament, will it be seen as another maracanazo? Another national tragedy that will cause a new round of self-doubt and questioning? Will Brazilian politicians take advantage of this? As Demata has said, soccer is such a transparent game. It's a meritocracy. Players are judged by their talent and performance in a visible arena. Everyone can watch them. Then there's Brazilian politics. So much takes place behind closed doors and is marked by what Demata calls incredible incompetence. Even when the soccer matches come to an end in Brazil, the election match is about to start and it's going to raise a lot of questions about who are the players in the arena and what have they done and haven't done for 21st century Brazil. It's not the same Brazil with the muck complex that Nelson Rodriguez lamented so many years ago. For Latin Pulse, I'm Alyssa Pacheco. 
And now Latin American Perspectives with Macarena Saiz of the Washington College of Law at American University. I have a World Cup fever, and it is a guilty pleasure. I have the FIFA app in my iPhone, I follow all results, and as a Chilean, I'm rooting loud for my country. Despite FIFA being quite an undemocratic and obscure institution, most Latin Americans cannot avoid this World Cup fever. And I think we shouldn't. It is a celebration of hard work and incredible skills. And for 90 minutes at a time, we forget so many problems our countries suffer. But as fun as the World Cup is, it is also a bunch of men playing in a men's world. Women's World Cup has not even half of the endorsements that the World Cup gets. The female players don't get the salaries that these soccer players get. The president of FIFA once gave a few suggestions for increasing female soccer's popularity. Among them, that women should wear tighter shorts. But even if we want to forget for a moment the issue of discrimination of women's soccer players and focus again in the great games we can watch, we notice a total absence of women commenting on the World Cup. It is a game of men, by men, for men. Univision, in addition to having some commentators who are painfully bad at commenting on a game, have sometimes included women. With a traditional Univision style, the woman is dressed as if going to a nightclub and her comments on soccer are as light as her attire. Look what is happening in Brazil today. As tourists fill the streets of Brazil's cities, the trafficking of women becomes an even larger problem. Underage girls from different countries are being brought to Brazil to satisfy a larger consumer's population. Brazil's poverty contributes to girls selling their bodies to tourists who celebrate their country's soccer wins with street sex. Brazil spent millions of dollars building and renovating stadiums. How many children could have been saved from sex trafficking with that money? Child prostitution is so normalized in some parts of Brazil that the police do not even intervene. It is clear. The World Cup has problems. Should we just ignore them? I refuse to do that. I hope sooner than later, female soccer players will be as popular as men's soccer players. And perhaps we will enjoy one World Cup with men and women's games. I hope to see good male and female soccer commentators. But most of all, I hope we will take this opportunity to watch the World Cup and talk about the ugly side of FIFA and soccer as it is promoted worldwide. I don't want to be the spoiled sport, but I can't just sit silently and enjoy my guilty pleasure of soccer while thousands of children will be trafficked in plain sight, while women will still be brought to comment on soccer games with little clothing and little knowledge of the game, when female soccer players by definition play in the second division. So I invite you to watch and celebrate the World Cup with a twist. Speak to your family and friends about the ugly side of the World Cup. Talk to your male friends, your children, about the risks of contributing to a sex trafficking industry. Discrimination of women in sports is not specific to soccer, but as we watch the World Cup, it is just blatantly in our face. It would be a shame if we once more keep a blind eye to what we know is happening. Let's make the World Cup a real pleasure and less of a guilty one for everyone. The opinions of Macarena Saiz are her own and are not the official views of this program. Coming up, history, the Panama Canal, and an important anniversary. Stay with us. This is Tom Scared for the Borgen Project. Each year, nearly two million children die from preventable diseases. Each day, 30,000 people die from hunger. 
500 each hour are children. The Borgen Project is turning this around. We need your help. To learn more, go to borgenproject.org. That's B-O-R-G-E-N project.org. Later this summer, Panama will mark an important anniversary, a century since the opening of the Panama Canal. The canal is something the world takes for granted these days, but in 1914, it was considered one of the wonders of the modern world. Today, 5% of all the world's trade moves through the canal, and an expensive modernization and expansion project is underway. We asked Julie Green at the University of Maryland to give us her insights on 100 years of the Panama Canal. She's the author of The Canal Builders, Making America's Empire at the Panama Canal. Here are excerpts from our Skype conversation. There's a history behind my choosing the word empire. Uh, to a lot of U.S. historians, back when I started the research on this, back in the 1990s, I said to diplomatic historians, is this a story about empire? And a lot of my friends said, no, the U.S. building the Panama Canal had nothing to do with empire. It was a humanitarian mission. Um, but after 9-11, U.S. historians and the public in general began talking about and thinking about much more seriously the global power of the United States as an imperial project. And so suddenly when I would ask my historian friends, what did they think about framing this as a part of the imperial history of the U.S.? Their answer completely changed, and they would say, of course, the building of the Panama Canal was an imperial strategy. Um, and so it, my thinking never really changed. To me, the Panama Canal was, uh, although framed by Theodore Roosevelt as very much a humanitarian, uh, a selfless gift to civilization, in fact, to me, it was clear all along that this was about articulating and manifesting the global power of the United States in Latin America. Is this where U.S. empire begins, or is this where U.S. empire catapults from a regional power to a power that can be on the world stage? I think, I think the latter way you put it is much more accurate. Um, there's actually a lot of research being done now going back to the 18th century uh, in the ways in which the United States was actually imperial before it was a nation. In other words, a lot of the imperial visions of the British and the French shaped the early republic. So empire is an old story in the United States. What makes the turn of the 20th century so significant and makes the Panama Canal so significant is that it was a, a moment in which the U.S. catapulted much more broadly onto the world stage. And the Panama Canal, to me, was important because it played such an iconic role in that reframing of U.S. power. The, the Panama Canal was a huge project, of course, taking, uh, taking up a lot of time and money and the energies of hundreds of thousands of people from around the world. And it was framed by the U.S. as this showcase, really, for U.S. know-how, U.S. scientific and industrial uh, uh, expert skills, 
uh, and very much as a selfless gift to world civilization. Um, and all of that framing is a lot of why the, the Panama Canal project kind of soared over the whole 20th century of, of U.S. foreign policy. We end up taking not just the, the canal, but also a canal zone uh, for many decades after this. So, so there is a piece of land that the U.S. gets as, as part of this particular deal, No. Indeed. It's a, in many ways, the canal zone and the canal construction project became a model for U.S. officials for how to dominate and shape another part of the world. Um, so, yeah, in the, um, in the treaty that gave the United States the right to build the canal, which, by the way, was not negotiated with any uh, any member of the Panamanian government. The, you know, Panama had just uh, achieved independence from Colombia in part with help from the United States. The United States quickly negotiated a treaty with a representative of the French Panama Canal Company that had tried to build the canal in the 1880s. And that treaty was so disadvantageous to the Republic of Panama it was said that the the young um, first president of the country nearly fainted in shock um, because that treaty gave the United States uh, permanent and absolute control over this huge uh, region that that dominated the heart of the country of Panama, where the canal would be built, uh, permanent and complete control, and gave the U.S. the the power to intervene. Uh, in any way, militarily or politically, in the affairs of the Republic of Panama, any time it felt it necessary. This is a piece that isn't taught in elementary school history or high school history about how Panama came to be. Uh, and some would say that this was engineered as a way to destabilize Colombia um, to create this particular imperial project. Do you agree with that framing? Yeah, I think it's a little, um, I mean, there are complexities to that. Uh, but Theodore Roosevelt um, and others in the U.S. government were certainly convinced that a, an Isthmian canal was necessary. And they had tried to negotiate that with Colombia. And Colombia had balked at the terms, rightly so. What haven't we covered that you think is important for our listeners to know? Well, I think I would return us just a little bit more to the, the, that amazing moment of the building of the control and what uh, the building of the canal and what that must have seemed like to the tens of thousands of people who worked it. To dig that canal was an incredible feat. It, uh, at one point, the so-called Gaillard Cut, the canal had to cut through the Continental Divide. Um, you can imagine a day working, digging. Uh, these workers often were working amidst the incredible downpours of rain that happen in Panama. Uh, there might be slides or avalanches, so they might be actually digging while standing in water to their waist. The the boom of the dynamite going off, you know, dozens of times a day, the trains 
going by. There were many different levels of train tracks going through the canal, and uh, there weren't many cars and roads in the canal zone. Everything was uh, via train. Um, the dangers that people faced, whether from malaria or from premature dynamite explosions. Uh, one worker said, the flesh of men flew like birds in the air many days. Um, so uh, just the, to me, it, it's one of the most dramatic histories I've ever come upon. And I, I like to imagine what it would have been like to be a young you know, Barbadian who grew up on working on a farm and then traveled to the canal zone. What an incredible global journey that must have been. Thank you so much, Julie Green of the University of Maryland and the author of Canal Builders, Making America's Empire at the Panama Canal, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you so much. This was a fun to, fun to talk with you. I appreciate it. If you're looking for archival versions of our program, Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and MusicaQ. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. And now a programming advisory, Latin Pulse will be taking an extended summer vacation this year with plans to be back in September. This is our last online radio program originating from our base at American University. We want to thank the University Center for Latin American and Latino Studies for its financial and editorial support, and also the School of Communication for providing its studios. In the fall, we plan to be back with a new team, a new studio, and a slightly adjusted format as we give you weekly insights into Latin America. So, a special thanks to our entire team, announcer Victor Kilo, reporter Elisa Pacheco, and associate producer Megan Eckhamel. I'm Rick Rockwell. Thanks for joining us for our 90-minute special and for all of the Latin Pulse series of reports. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music by Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2014, Las Rocas Productions.